This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, it's Sunak versus Musk. One of the weirdest political events I've ever been to. In Lancaster House, the set of The Crown, no less. Or at least where they filmed The Crown, a lot of it, because it looks like Buckingham Palace. Rishi Sunak, the actual Prime Minister, sat down and interviewed Elon Musk about the future of AI and how robots could become your best friend but eventually the humanoids might chase you up the stairs or something. We unpack all of that, try to work out what we've actually learned. And is is Elon Musk the sort of guy that Rishi Sunak should be essentially sucking up to? We'll hear from a couple of people who've worked with him up until the point he fired him at Twitter. That's coming up in just a moment. James Marriott and India Knight coming up as well. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned. Did you know this? That we've got a new podcast. The security minister, Tom Tugendhat, knows all about it. No. Prime Minister's doing is trying to put the Brit- Britain uh, front and centre of an, uh, the next industrial revolution. This is much more important than a podcast, I'm afraid. Don't tell Matt Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be listening. Hey, uh, I'm listening. On the podcast, How to Win an Election, we learned that Danny Finkelstein is exasperated with Rishi Sunak. I cannot understand why Rishi Sunak has not said what he definitely thinks, which is, I picked up after two immediate disasters which had gone off the rails. Mm. We learned that Polly McKenzie knows a lot about crazy golf. Bournemouth does have the best crazy golf really of all of the golf. beach resorts yeah. in the United Kingdoms. And we learned that Peter Manson loves the metaphor. The conference fell flat, the pillars were not put in place, the springboard is looking you know, decidedly floppy. Floppy. At the COVID inquiry, we learned that Boris Johnson asked if he should blow a special hairdryer up his nose to kill COVID. Which at least explains why his hair's such a mess. We learn that Dominic Cummings still thinks everyone else is an idiot. I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who are dealing with this crisis extremely badly. And when he finds out who the... Who... Him promoted Boris Johnson through vote leave, supported him, re-elected him, covered up for him and desperately clung on until he got the sack. He's going to grind them into swill and feed them to the... Useless and we learned that Rishi Sunak's big idea to deal with the rise of the robots is... Any of these movies, trains, 
subways, metros, cars, buses. <laughs> they said all these movies with the same plot fundamentally all end with the person turning it off. And that is what we learned this week. And you can subscribe to How to Win an Election right now, wherever you're listening to this. Right, now it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically battering away at my column on Times Radio. We'll, uh, we'll talk about James and his column in a moment. Let's talk first about uh, Elon Musk and Rishi Sunak. Uh, this funny little meeting last night. And the idea that eventually we'll all be put out of work. This is what Elon Musk said. There will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything. So eventually there'll come a point when no job is needed. And I thought, you know, you can just have a job if you want to. I could never think of Richard Sinat probably thought, yeah, you just marry a billionaire's daughter. What do you make of this idea that AI might mean that work will become optional? I quite like it. I mean, I'm not against it in principle. I think um, it was really interesting when he, I thought what he said was that was interesting was the idea that in that case, the thing becomes about finding a you know finding meaning in life if there's no work to give you a sense of self and an identity um but i'm not opposed to the idea i mean people are going to have to develop some really good and kind of all consuming hobbies i guess um i don't know what do you think i mean it's not unappealing i suppose fundamentally most people currently don't have work for you know because it's nice it's because you need to be able mm. to pay for a roof over your head and buy some mm. food. And Did he say where the roof, the money for the roof was coming no, from? No, he said, because there was a discussion about, uh, what do they call universal basic income, the idea that everyone would have a guaranteed amount yeah. of money. Unclear, because presumably coming from the government, but unclear how you raise the money for that if nobody's working. And then he said, no, not universal basic income. He said universal, universal high income. And everyone went... So you've got lots of money from the government and nothing to do and you just mill about all day. Yeah. I mean, and everyone yeah. sort of giggled okay. without really knowing what that meant. And it wasn't clear where that money comes from because if nobody's working to pay tax, then unless you tax the robots, do the robots pay tax? It's not clear, India. I mean, it's I'll, not clear the, at all. The only thing we could all really hope is we'll all be dead before this happens. Yeah, I think, I think it's some way away. So, yeah, we'll be long gone. Uh, right, is James alive? That's the bigger question. James, are you there? Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear, James. James, are you Excellent. looking? For, are you looking forward to uh, being replaced by a robot? Uh, no, I, I'm not. Actually, I, I do. It's something I do worry about. Um, it's one of those strange things where it sounds incredibly futuristic, but you know, if, for instance, I don't know if either of you know people working in advertising copywriting, but those sorts of jobs are already mm. being replaced by ChatGPT, and um, you know, people who work for advertising copywriting companies already finding that you know a team of sort of like five copywriters is now down to one who's just sort of overseeing robot writing and i don't know i mean it sort of sounds appealing in the abstract but i think when it actually arrives it will be less you know none of those people who i've heard of have lost jobs to uh ai are particularly happy about it and i don't think i'll be very happy about it uh if and when it happens to me um but I do, I do also think that probably widespread job losses are more distant than that. It'll probably, I imagine, it'll be quite gradual, you know, initially. 
Yeah, the thing that I found odd about this this conversation last night, and actually about the the, the conversation they've been having all week at this summit, is there's no real like effort, as far as I can tell, to put sort of time scales on it. So you on the one hand mm. have Rishi Sunak saying literally sitting and telling the richest man in the world about gov.uk where you can go online and renew your driving licence or your passport <laughs> and saying they're going to start using AI in that to try and speed things up, which is sort of, you know, that seems like the sort of, th- you know, the same way that AI might serve up uh, adverts on your website because it knows where you live. That, you know, that I could get. And then it's quite a big leap from that to be careful because there's a robot coming up your stairs and it wants to kill you. Um, and I don't. There's there's clearly a long timeline in that. That, that. No one seems to really want to grapple with when we're talking about India. No, and there's no sort of not, there's no chronology. You know, so you're you you don't know when the robot that is also apparently going to be your best friend and your confidant and know you better than you know yourself. I mean, no thanks. But you 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 don't know when that might happen. Is he talking about now? Do people have very intimate relationships with? chatbots i think they probably do some of them who are stuck at home and i don't know i don't know it's all i find it all really i find it much more alarming than exciting i find it exciting in the context of things like medicine because clearly quite remarkable things yes, exactly. are happening already and are likely to happen in the in the near future but but all of this more abstract stuff like not having jobs and free money and <laughs> your best friend robot coming to mer- <laughs> you, you know, it would be it would be quite handy to know. Yeah, if you could when that was when, when those happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, given I mean, given that we can't get a train to arrive on time, it seems quite a long way off before a robot comes up your stairs. Mm. But anyway, um, James, the, I mean, the thing is, you don't need to worry about uh, a robot coming for you and doing away with the need for your column because you've already done it in your own column by writing yeah, I, this week. Was this a mistake? That that people should stop having opinions, says columnist. Yeah, I, I know. I'm sort of wondering about that one. I, I do wonder whether I've... Um, oh, he's gone again. He's gone again. I'll tell you what, job. if we could replace um, James Marriott with a bot, it'd be a damn sight easier. Can you, can you at, hear me? at least the bot would probably come into the room, uh, come into the studio. India, what did you think of uh, of James's suggestion? I mean, the, the headline point was, was I thought, probably quite good, that um, you don't need to have an opinion on everything. And he sort of drew a line from the amateur epidemiologists during the COVID lockdown. Mm. They all then became experts in military hardware during Ukraine. And now they're all experts on Middle Eastern history and how you solve the uh, Israel-Gaza uh, conflict. We, don't, yes. we just don't need to have a hot take on everything, do we? No, we don't need to have a hot take on everything. The problem is... We sort of feel like we do, whether we're journalists or not, because anyone who uses social media can't, we know, will just get kind of completely ignored and steamrolled if they if they just sit there and say what most people think, which is, and I'm somewhere in the middle, I'm not sure that's interesting, but that's also interesting. Not really sure, haven't made up my mind yet, you know, but you can't, you, you have to stick out and you have to trumpet an opinion very loudly and um, as James says in his column, you know, that often means acquiring an opinion very, very quickly, thanks to Wikipedia. And then the whole exercise <laughs> becomes completely meaningless and pointless. Right, let's try one more time. James, are you there? I'm here. Well, oh, I think no. I'm here. I feel like I'm here. Well, we can hear you. We can hear you. Um, James, explain why you think you should give up your column in The Times. Well, that, that, wasn't, quite, that wasn't quite what I was going for. And it, it is a difficult balance because obviously... You know, as I said in the piece, you know, I think it's not unreasonable to be outraged and upset by what's happening in Gaza. I guess the argument really was against 
ill-informed opinion, knee-jerk opinion, which I don't really think helps anyone. I mean, anyone who's been on Twitter and Instagram will just see that, you know, a million people seem to have turned themselves into amateur experts on Israel and Gaza and have all kinds of horribly badly informed opinions. And my feeling is that sort of tends to lead to, you know, fake news, unhelpful levels of outrage that are directed in unhelpful places. And also, I think a lot of really angry opinions end up just sort of backfiring on you. And if you have an angry, ignorant opinion, you're not really helping your own side. You're just kind of proving to your enemies how dumb your point of view is. And I just, I don't know, it's made, me just, it's made me despair a little bit. I mean, as you say, it's kind of hard for an opinion columnist to say this as, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm paid to have opinions. But sometimes, I, you know, it's good to sacrifice, you know, one's a bit of professional hypocrisy in order to try and say something that you think is true, even if it also rebounds on you. So um, uh, I think the timing of this was you wrote your column and it went online and then perhaps the best example of people getting performatively cross about everything came along. One of my, I mean, I think this is one of my favourite stories in ages is the Marks and Spencer story. So the Marks and Spencer Christmas adverts released and they, they the, I think the, the, the gist of it is they're sort of doing away with all the naff things about Christmas and it included a clip they put online of three Christmas cracker hats being thrown into the fire. They happen to be silver, red and green. And the internet decided, or performative idiots decided, that this looked like the Palestinian flag. It's now been deleted by Marks and Spencer, who've apologised for any hurt caused by the burning of some Christmas cracker hats in August uh, and making clear that it was not a comment on the current crisis in the Middle East. Um, are, are, we all, are we now beyond saving India? Yes, I think we became beyond saving um, a little <laughs> while ago, actually. But although I do think about that story, admit, you know, of course, those are Christmassy colours. And of course, they didn't mean anything by when they shot the thing in August. But they posted it yesterday or the day before. And it is no longer August. And we're all aware of what's going on in the Middle East. So somebody somewhere in their, you know, massively well remunerated advertising agency should have gone, hang on a minute. I think, you know, generally when you're burning stuff, a good rule is to say, do the colours of what we're burning look a bit like a flag, any flag from anywhere, you know, have Google open on world flags and sort of <laughs> keep an eye. Um, but no, we are, we, are, we are far beyond saving. The ship has sailed, I'm afraid. It's a good point, actually, because, James, we, we've all done it when we're doing promotional things. You know, you don't want a snatched photo. You wouldn't put out the one that looks a bit like you're doing a Hitler salute, even if you weren't doing a Hitler salute. You know, you look at, you know, the... the, the uh, trying to look... I suppose that's part of the job of the creative process is looking for the exactly these, these, these bear traps. Yeah, exactly. Although, I mean, as, you know, as someone who writes a column and, you know, discovers that people are outraged with you for all kinds of confusing reasons you would not have begun to anticipate... I do think it is hard to work out what people are going to get cross about. And one of the great lessons of column writing for me is it's never, ever the thing you really think, or very rarely is the thing you think. It's be something completely, you assumed, innocent and totally beside the main point that outrages people. And I think I'm a bit more pessimistic than India about the power of these well-paid advertising executives to always predict what the outrage is. I mean, to be honest, I imagine there are hundreds of stupid mistakes for the court that we don't see, but it's inevitable that something like, like this will slip through. Because I can't imagine having predicted that people would have this response to that advert. Yeah, well, we um, when we were doing the promotion for How to Win an Election, we got Peter Mandelson to dress up as Hitler. And then it was only afterwards we realised maybe we won't put those pictures out. <laughs> to be absolutely clear, that is not true. That is not true. <laughs> James, have you, uh, have you heard any good podcasts lately? 
Had any good podcasts? Well, there was one, you know. Um, what was it called? I think, was Matt Chorley involved in it? Yeah, you wrote a nice little review, didn't you, James? Yeah, I, re- I reviewed you. So you've got to be really nice to me now because I said that you were very good at making podcasts, specifically how to win an election with uh, Daniel Finkelstein, Peter Mandelson and Polly McKenzie. Am I doing the editorial stuff right? Yeah, doing very well, James. Yeah, yeah, you can get that job now. Um, you could be one of one, the one person left doing all the advertorial copy. India Night and James Barrett there. And, of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Musk versus Sunak. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I've seen some weird stuff in politics in my time. David Cameron with his hands down his trousers the first time I met him in his front room. He was just tucking his shirt in. There was it was it was a different time. Theresa May moving sort of in time to Dancing Queen. Jeremy Corbyn high-fiving Emily Thornby's breast. Charles Walker walking around Parliament with a pint of milk. Alex Salmon feeding a student a Solero. Ed Miliband's two kitchens, all very weird. But nothing quite as weird as last night's loving. All right, well, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Elon, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, we, feel, we feel very privileged. We're excited to have you. Right, so I'm going to start with some questions and then we're going to open it up. Let me get Great. straight into it. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and your miles and miles from your nice warm bed. Yeah, it was very, very, very weird. I went to Lancaster House last night to see Rishi Sunak interviewing Elon Musk, the the guy behind Tesla, the guy behind the rockets, the guy now behind X, formerly Twitter. And I couldn't help thinking, why is the actual Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland sitting there like Gloria Hunnaford, hanging on every word of this guy who basically bought Twitter and drove it towards the ground faster than one of his early rockets? Is that a wise thing to do? And what did we learn about the two men and also the prospect of us all being murdered in our beds by robots? In a moment, we're going to hear from some people who know uh, Elon Musk because he fired them uh, when he took over Twitter. 
But first, I'm joined by Jessica Frank Keys. She was there last night for City AM. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Matt. How's it going? I'm very well. I'm very well. Just sum up the morning after the night before. How weird was it? I think it's all been, it's been sinking in, hasn't it? Um, I saw Sam Coates from Sky News saying quite quickly after the event that it was one of the strangest things he's ever covered as a journalist. Obviously, he's got far more experience than me, but I would also agree that the tone was just incredibly strange. Um, I think it was the contrast of this, um, you were there, obviously, as, as you said, this gold-plated, high-ceilinged, ornate room, you know, with, with the sort of, you know, black... Um, black backdrop of a uh, Rishi Sunak ex Elon Musk um, talking about, yeah, Terminator films, humanoid robots. It, it, you were just sort of going, I can't really believe what I'm hearing and where I'm hearing it. It was, it was very odd. <laughs> there was something very odd, I mean, peculiar about the Prime Minister doing the interviewing. Uh, and let's be honest, there were pretty softball questions as well. So let's, let's go through some of what they discussed and we'll try to work out what we're learning about Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk and what it means for us. So Rishi Sunak, uh, early on, asked Elon Musk about the impact of AI on jobs. There will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything. So I don't know if that makes people comfortable or uncomfortable. It, it's... it's <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that slightly awkward, maniacal laughing uh, going on, Jessica. Yes. Quite a, ner a nervous laugh there from the Prime Minister, who obviously, as a Conservative, as he said himself during that inter interview that he was conducting, um, you know, as a Conservative, I believe in the value of work, the importance of work to us as a society and to people's lives. And, and, and Elon referenced that as well in saying that one of the challenges of the future is, is going to be how do we extract meaning from our lives if essentially robots can do everything? What what does that mean? And, you know, we should say that we've, we've had these kind of existential questions thrown up by new technology before, like even going back to the Industrial Revolution, the creation of the Internet. But it's it's certainly it's a theme that's coming up again now, because I think that it is something that risks being incredibly destabilizing. Potentially, we obviously don't know at the moment where these technologies are going to go. And what struck me, what surprised my two things actually surprised me about Elon Musk. One, how softly spoken he was. Uh, given his character online, his sort of p online presence is quite a sort of bombastic, aggressive, shouty, you know, Twitterer. Uh, he was, you know, at times I could barely hear what he was saying. He was sort of quite softly spoken. Maybe that speaks to, you know, keyboard keyboard warriors who are more shouty <laughs> online than they are in person. But also it was just that both Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk seem to be sort of, they seem to know as much about this as you and I do. It was sort of like, oh yeah, no, that could happen, couldn't it? Well, don't be bad, wouldn't it? Um, without any real sense of sort of time scale or practicalities. And at one point they talked about an, a universal basic income or a universal high income without thinking, well, where does that money come from? You know, if you're, if you're going to be paying people money to sit at home and do nothing... Do you tax the robots? None of that was really clear. Um, there were some upsides to this, though, apparently. Uh, this is uh, Elon Musk talking about some of the upsides of uh, robots taking over our lives. Look at the, the landscape of things that you see as possible. What is it that you, know, you are yeah, particularly I, excited about? I, I think certainly AI, AI tutors are going to be amazing. Um, perhaps already are. Uh, I think there's also perhaps companionship, which may seem odd, because how can the computer really be your friend? But if you, if you have an AI that 
has memory, you know, and remembers all of your interactions and has read everything. You can say, like, give it permission to read everything you've ever done. So it really will know you better than anyone, perhaps even yourself. Um, and, and, and where you can talk to it every day and, and those conversations build upon each other, you will actually have a great friend. Um, as long as that friend can stay your friend and not get turned off or something. Uh, don't turn off my friend. <laughs> um, but I think that will actually be a real thing. Um, huh. huh. <laughs> the that nervous laughter that again. nervous laughter again. It's very peculiar. And it, it seems to me just a slight misunderstanding of just what the point of a friend is. And it's not just to repeat back everything you've ever said. I mean, actually, the idea of a friend remembering everything you've ever said is slightly slightly terrifying. I, I'd have to agree. I, I mean, I I would suggest that maybe me as a person, I haven't always been at the, for, at the forefront of embracing technological change. Um, I think I remember trying to persuade my housemate at the time not to install smart bulbs in all our rooms because, you know, what if, what if all the robots broke and we could never turn the lights off? It would be horrible. Uh, but I think it was two things from that, really, that sort of chunk there from Elon, um, both on the friend and the teaching side. Um, my mum's a teacher and fantastic. Obviously, if AI can cut down the marking and the lesson planning that teachers have to do, which you know takes up so much time. Um, but there's so much more to, to being a teacher, I think, than, than just kind of, you know, teaching people how to pass exams or how to understand, um, you know, math equations like there's the whole like like you say about a friend there's the whole pastoral passing on sort of um moral values providing emotional support you know just really being a, a kind of a figure of guidance in, in like kids lives and, and I just think we have to think very carefully about how are we going to engage with that yeah you, you sort of got the feeling that maybe he hadn't had an actual friend before and he just thought that yeah. all, all a friend did was just was reminded you of all the other things that you've said it was very peculiar. Anyway, let's let's um, that was one of the upsides. Remember the tutors and friends course, and all that. Yeah. Let's look now at some of the downsides. Now it, it seems that all this week, no one can talk about AI without mentioning sort of slightly vaguely James Cameron films, when of course they mean they mean Terminator. But if you have a humanoid robot, it can it can basically chase you anywhere. So I, I think we should have some kind of hardwired local cutoff. Um, that, you, that you can't update from the internet. <laughs> so anything that can be software updated from the internet obviously can be overridden. Um, but if you have a local sort of off switch um, where you perhaps say a keyword or something and then that puts the robot into a safe state, some kind of localized safe state ability, an off switch, you know, uh, where you don't have to get too close to the robot. I don't know. So we, 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 we've got millions of these things going all over the place. You're not selling it. Just, you know, like that. <laughs> no, I, I know. Um, I, I'm saying this is something we should be quite concerned about because um, if the robot can, robot can follow you anywhere, then what if they just one day get a software update and they're not so friendly anymore? Great. Well, uh, luckily, Rishi Sunak had a solution. It's funny you say that because we, in our session that we had today... Uh, with say who made, we, they made exactly the same point, right, Dennis? They were talking about they talk about movies, and they, actually without mentioning James Cameron, they're talking about James Cameron movies. And <laughs> they're saying if you think about it, it's, it, uh, it's not just those movies, but any of these movies, trains, subways, metros, cars, buses. <laughs> they said all these movies with the same plot fundamentally all end with the person turning it off, right, or finding a way yeah. to shut the thing down. And they were making the same point that that you were about the importance of actual physical off switches. Jessica, I just couldn't help thinking we were supposed to be seeing the two people 
to uh, tech-savvy, world-leading uh, uh, voices on this uh, subject. And the best that either of them could come up with was to turn it off and turn it back on again. Yeah. I, th I think it's interesting because as an in as an interviewer, you know, if you sit down with somebody to ask them questions, you, you often find yourself sort of guided by the kind of road they want to go down with the conversation because, you know, obviously you're trying to find out their stance on an issue. And that was the role that Rishi Sunak cast himself in last night as, as the interviewer. And I, I think perhaps we saw more of what, Elon Musk thinks about AI than we learned about what Rishi Sunak really thinks. I think, you know, maybe the last two days of the Bletchley Park summit, we would have got a bit more insight into kind of at a government level, um, you know, where these conversations are going. But um, yeah, it was, it was, as you said earlier, it was all a very vague, theoretical, ha ha, wouldn't that be bad level, which, you know, <laughs> that's fine for Musk as, as a businessman, but I think as a, from a, from the Prime Minister, you know, we were kind of maybe not getting that window into the the more uh, detailed conversations, which which you'd hope, uh, and I'm sure, are going on. And I sort of wondered who's the audience for this? Because if you are a, a very, you know, it was streamed later on Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk's uh, X accounts. If you are a super engaged, you know, AI nerd about it, you know, you're right at the forefront of all this, you read all the blogs, you're looking at all the tech, you're, you know, you're completely absorbed by it. You must have thought this is like just just drivel. This is this is just top level waffling about James Cameron films. If you are a curious, concerned person who's not really into this, and you tuned in hoping to find out something or to seek reassurance, I'm not sure you'd have come a, come away with it. Um, I, uh, somebody who I who I know well who was involved in sort of organising similar thing. He wasn't involved in this AI summit, but a similar sort of government events and conferences and that sort of stuff. Uh, messaged me this morning, I find the odd and unspoken thing about the AI summit is the whole point was the public are quite fearful about AI and that's because they don't think it's safe. So they decided to hold a big safety summit in order to reassure everyone. But actually, I think it's had the opposite effect of reminding everyone that it might not be that safe, like a pink elephant summit to ensure that no one thinks about pink elephants. And maybe that, that that's what I sort of came away from it. There wasn't any reassurance or any sense of a sort of grip or a plan. Do you think that's fair? I think I think we're in the very early stages. Um, we, we you know we obviously have had things like the Bletchley, Bletch, get yeah. my words out, uh, Park Declaration, and the agreement that was announced yesterday. You know, coming out, but, but you, like you say, yeah, then go into that conversation with Elon Musk, where you know he he sounded worried at times, yeah. and it's hard to know. It's it's hard to know kind of where this is going to go, but the fact that he was expressing, you know, some quite serious concerns about things like we really need to get China involved um, and actually being quite supportive of the idea of government regulation, which I think will have surprised some people. That's um, true, yeah. I, I think, yeah, we're, we're, we're at the early stages, but um, I don't know how reassuring. I don't know how reassuring I found it. Um, <laughs> I found it interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> then, it was it was surprising, but, yeah, probably not very reassuring. <laughs> Let's focus on a couple of things we did learn then. Uh, we we got a sense that we might have a general election from uh, Rishi Sunak when he warned that the, the 2024 will be the first big run of global elections hit by AI. Let's take a listen. I've already had a situation happen to me with a doctored image that goes everywhere, negative. By the time everyone realises, well, that's fake and we should stop sending it, the damage is, the damage is done. Um, and actually, we were, again, reflecting today. If you think next year... You've got elections in, you know, I think, you know, the US, India, I think Indonesia, probably here. There you go. Uh, <laughs> massive news. 
So I think the doctored image he was talking about was one where uh, he was putting pints at a um, uh, a beer festival and there was someone stood behind him, there was a woman stood behind him, and they, somebody doctored her eyes to make it look like she was basically looking at him like, oh, this guy's an idiot, uh, which is actually was shared by lots of people, including a Labour MP. Uh, I'm not sure if it's suddenly going to swing the election, but it's an example of how that stuff can go around. Uh, but, you know, some confirmation we'll have a general election next year, so at least we learned something, Jessica. Yeah, and I, and I think he did say probably next year, leaving himself <laughs> yes, open exactly. to, you know, can we go as far as January 2025, which which I'm sure some people will um, think, oh, God, you know, and some people will think that, that that's great, you know, that there are this lot of time to turn things around. So we all know it's coming, um, and it is clear that, I think AI and election interference has been one of the kind of big themes of you know, the safety summit. Um, and that's something that the world leaders across the world are going to be concerned about. Um, politically, though, I mean, it didn't I, I, I did wonder, you know, who you know, talking about people who are concerned about AI, how reassured are they, are they going to be? But in terms of conservative voters and people who Sunak wants to try and win over, um, I, w I was wondering who it is, is aimed at because the, the sort of core conservative vote maybe tends to be older. Are they people who are on Twitter who are watching a, a live stream with Elon Musk? Um, I'm not sure that that my grandparents would have been tuning in. Um, so yeah, um, and actually the, the other the other sort of political fallout of this, and you know, in terms of Rishi Sunak's ability to connect with with voters, the bit that's been uh, seized on by certainly the the, the Labour Party it was. When which is, you know, I was talking to uh, Elon Musk about how Britain could adopt a bit more of the Silicon Valley culture. Right, it's how do you transpose that culture from places like Silicon Valley across the world where people are unafraid to give up the security of a regular paycheck to go and start something and be comfortable with failure. You, you talked about that a lot. I think yeah. you talked about it more in when you were playing games, right? The, the, <laughs> that, that you've got to be comfortable yeah. failing and knowing that that's just part of the process. And that is a, it's a tricky cultural thing to do overnight, but it's an important part of, I think, creating that kind of environment. Yeah, if, if, if you don't succeed with the, your first startup, it shouldn't be a sort of a catastrophic career-ending exactly. thing. It should, be, it should be like, well, you, know, you gave it a good shot, you know, and, 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 and now try again. And exactly. Yeah. And the Labour Party are out already this morning, Jessica, saying this is this just speaks to the problem of uh, of a very rich guy who uh, knows, you know, with he's got money in the bank, and so you can start businesses and let them fail and all of that. And that's just a million miles away from lots of people's current experience. Absolutely, and you know, we talk a lot at, um, at City AM as well about uh, encouraging and uh, being in a position to support businesses to, to take risks because that's obviously key to encouraging the economy to grow, um, which is in both Rishi Sunak's five pledges and Keir Starmer's missions is, is to get get Britain growing. Um, so there's that argument. But when I think it when I think it falls down is, is when you do try and apply it to ordinary people. I mean, just look at the furlough scheme and the amount of time it took for self-employed people to kind of come under the government protections when when COVID hit. So I think that's a really good point. A, yeah, yeah. The uh, the way that way that, that that attitude actually feeds its way into into uh, policy. Yeah, Labour's Labour's uh, front bencher John Ashworth said, "How out of touch is Richie Sunak after 13 years of the Tories? The public are enjoying the worst cost of living crisis in memory, and he's spending his time telling Elon Musk that he wishes people would give up their jobs and be ready to fail. He hasn't got a clue." Uh, which, having seen some of the reaction uh, today, has certainly uh, resonated with some people. Um, uh, Jessica, it's been thank you so much for taking us through it. I'm glad that you survived it as well, and you, you managed to, I hope, got some sleep overnight without the prospect of your dishwasher coming and doing you in. Uh, Jessica Frank-Keys from City AM, thanks so much for joining us.
Thank you. uh, Good to speak to you. Now, one of the big questions is whether or not this was even a wise thing for Rishi Sunak to do, to sit down with Elon Musk. So I asked the Culture Secretary, Lucy Fraser, who sits in Rishi Sunak's cabinet, whether she thought it was a smart thing to do. I think what we've got in the Global AI Summit is bringing together key people in this space to discuss the challenges that we face as a world. So, you know, bringing together a large number of countries together with key uh, key players in this space. We can't, as a country, solve these massive issues alone. And I think it's important to be able to talk to and understand the ideas of those who are intricately involved in thinking about these issues. But there's, I suppose there's talking to and there's changing the the number 10 logo on the doors of Downing Street to the X logo, that looks more like endorsement, you know, sidling up to, cozying up to Elon Musk. That's not just asking him what he thinks about AI regulation along with everyone else at the um, at the summit. Do you, you're not worried at all that this might be be a step too far? Um, I'm I'm not worried that there are going to be significant consequences for uh, 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 what's on the door of number 10 Downing Street for a couple of minutes. Uh, What I am uh, keen on ensuring is that we, the UK, play a really significant role and are a world leader in what is one of the most fundamental challenges and opportunities that's coming down our path. And I think what our AI summit is going to do is really um, bring countries together be a really focal point uh, for making decisions, understanding these issues. And I'm really pleased that the UK is absolutely at the centre of that. Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser there. Let's now speak to Simon Balmain, who was a community manager at Twitter. Hi, Simon. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Why are you no longer a community manager at Twitter? Uh, I was laid off along with about 85% of the company uh, when Elon bought the company. So, yeah, that was about uh, a year ago. Yeah. So how do you feel then seeing Rishi Sunak, I mean, I, the word I used in the Times today was simpering as he interviewed Elon Musk? Mm, I, I think that's that sounds like a very accurate characterization to me. Uh, the whole thing seemed very, very performative, very much a, a PR stunt by by Rishi to uh, make him seem like he he's he knows what's going on, like he's on the ball with this stuff. And when actually, I think he probably isn't. Uh, it's not, you know, from what I've heard that, that he says, it seems like he has a very rudimentary understanding of AI, uh, in my opinion, and just wants to, to look good by cozying up to a fellow billionaire. Um, I think I read your article. I thought it was great. I think... Um, the point that you ended on about uh, tech only gets interesting when the creatives show up was absolutely on point. I, I come from a creative background myself, um, and that that's absolutely correct. Um, it, it, this this whole meeting, I'm yeah, I, I don't really see the value in it from what everything I've heard about it. And give us a sense of that. I mean, the reason you and lots of other people aren't at Twitter slash X anymore is because Elon Musk said there were too many people, and you don't need all that. Uh, we can get rid of it all and the whole thing can be a success. And actually what we've seen since is it's become harder to use. The the number of bots, misinformation, f- filth circulating on the site seems to have gone up, you know, anecdotally, if not uh, people have done studies. But as a result, I mean, it's still incredibly influential. So should we be, I mean, what are the questions that Rishi Sunak should have been putting to Elon Musk if he was going to, going to do that about his ability to control what's been posted online and the impact that has on society on politics around the world 
Absolutely. Well, first of all, if, if you know, this person is, is supposed to be the, the leader and the representative of our country, well, where is where is the questions about actually how you treated the UK staff in particular last year? You know, hundreds and hundreds of UK staff were uh, were you know summarily laid off with uh, very little process. There were lawsuits against that here, just like there were in, in the US. Uh, he didn't pay his rent on the HQ in London for many, many months, a building that was owned by the Crown Estates. You know, where's, where's the questions about that? He, uh, he shows up when it's, uh, when it's, it's good for him. Um, in terms of the platform itself, you know, one of the changes that, that was made was that um, it's very difficult to, uh, to go on the platform and uh, not see everything that uh, Elon tweets himself. He boosted himself up right to the top of everybody's timeline. Uh, is that a good way to run a company or is it the actions of a dictator? And his role, I mean, his, I mean, it's not just, I suppose, what he can do through through Twitter. The fact that he controls Starlink, the uh, internet, uh, the satellite internet uh, system. You know, we've seen there have been conversations about his ability to basically turn that on and off in war zones, whether that's in Ukraine or potentially now in the Middle East. You know, this is a guy with incredible power to change the not just, you know, what we might think about something by based on tweets that get surfaced, but literally a player in global politics, global conflicts. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's one thing in, in itself to have that power. But when you see that uh, that power is consolidated to a man that is is very mercurial, um, makes decisions, you know, based upon whatever he feels like at any given time uh that's that's actually quite dangerous um i, I think that's the real worry and, and so for a for a leader to be cozying up in in that way with with somebody that's shown himself to be um quite uh, erratic and irrational at times um it's, it's really strange i don't know if uh if if somebody that i want to lead the company would uh, would support that and condone that and and want to be so visibly, uh, as you said, like uh, pandering to that. Yeah, I used the word strange there again. I think it's probably the, we've used the word strange and and weird more during during this item than than as we have uh, for a very long time. Simon, it's really good to speak to you, Simon Bellman, there, former community manager at Twitter. Uh, until he, along with hundreds of others, were fired by Elon Musk. And that's all we've got time for on that particularly peculiar event in politics. I definitely didn't dream it. It really did happen. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you haven't done already, you've got the weekend to listen to the first episode of How to Win an Election because there'll be another one along on Tuesday. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.